Let's turn this evening to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll read the whole chapter, 21 verses, and then turn our attention to verses 14 and 15. This is Paul's second inspired letter to the church of Corinth. Chapter 5, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from above. If so be that we, being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are in, at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again to you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, Yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God, that God, I, I, I had to turn the page here and it got stuck. Verse 19, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So far we read the holy, inspired word of God. 
Now let's turn back to verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live to themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. In the previous verse, verse 13, the apostle asserts that in his labors in Corinth as an apostle, everything he did was for their cause and the glory of God. He emphasizes that because he had enemies in Corinth, enemies that were trying to undermine his ministry and what he had done. They claim, for example, that Paul had dealt wrongfully with the Corinthians, that he had evil and ulterior motives. He was simply using them for his own personal advancement. Some even went so far as to say that Paul was out of his mind, beside himself. He was mad. And so Paul asserts here, whether we be beside ourselves, whether we're out of our minds, it is to God. Or whether we be sober or of a sound mind, it is for your cause. So whether we're in our right mind or whether we're out of our mind, everything we've done is for the cause of the church, and the cause of Jesus Christ. And now in the two verses we have before us, Paul gives the reason and explanation for that. It's introduced by the word for. He's going to explain something. Paul labors for the glory of God and for the cause of the church because the love of Christ constrains him to do so. When Paul speaks here of the love of Christ, he's talking about Christ's love for him and for the church, shown in his death on the cross. That love of which Paul was deeply aware, which he preached and taught, that love constrained him, compelled him, in what he did. And Paul goes on to explain. Why did Christ die in love? For Paul and for all the church. That they should no longer live unto themselves. But live unto Christ. Who gave his life for them and rose again. That's the purpose. That's why Christ died for us that we should no longer live unto ourselves, but live unto Christ who died for us. And Paul says, the love of Christ, which I have come to know, compels me no longer to live to myself. I used to do that all the time. I'm still inclined to do that. But the love of Christ compels me, constrains me to put that away and to live unto Christ who died for me. And that's why when I labored in Corinth, you can judge whether I was in my right mind or out of my mind. I did it unto Christ and for your well-being. 
As we go through this tonight, it's important that when we're all done, we ask each one himself, herself, young and old alike, how much do I live to Christ? How much do I live to myself? An inventory, an honest inventory, may be surprising to us, may sadden us. And we have to be instructed tonight always to look at Christ's love. He showed at the cross, dying for us, exactly so that we might be freed from the bondage of living to ourselves and set free to live unto him. I call your attention to constraining love. Notice with me, first of all, a wonderful love. Secondly, a wonderful purpose. And finally, a wonderful constraint. If one died for all, then we're all dead, says Paul. The one who died for all is Christ. And notice, Christ died for others. He died for all. We'll get to who that all is later on. But in the original Greek, that word for all is first. That's the emphasis. For all, for others he died. Of course, we're talking about Jesus' accursed death on the cross, aren't we? And that death was a horrible, horrible spectacle, the likes of which we will never, and even in all eternity, come fully to grasp and understand. That was the accursed death, and on that cross, he endured the wrath of God, all the wrath of God that is found in hell. And he did that as God's punishment for sin. That explains his death. He endured the horrible, hellish wrath against sin. We may ask, well, how is it that Christ then died this death? He has no sin. He's the only human that has no sin. From the cradle to the grave, he's not, a, he's not guilty of Adam's original sin, as we are, because he's not a human person. He's a divine person. Through the miracle of the virgin birth, the sinful nature of Adam and the human race wasn't extended to him as it is to all of us. He never sinned. How is it that he had to suffer the punishment of sin? The tortures of hell. And the answer is that he endured that death for others. Others have sinned. Others deserve to die. And Jesus bore the punishment of their sin and death for them. Literally, in the original, in their place. As their substitute. That's the idea. He stood before God as their substitute and he took it upon himself. And so we talk about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Otherwise, if you want to use the Latin, uh, the word that comes out of Latin, vicarious, same thing. Substitutionary. 
vicarious, a very important concept. Now, according to the passage, Jesus bore this death for all. If one died, if one died, for all, then we're all dead. Now, if we take this passage without any connection at all to the rest of Scripture, we might say, well, he died the death of hell for every individual of the human race, but we know that's not true. That would stand in the face of, of the whole analogy of Scripture about Christ's death. And so we must see that the all here stands in contrast to the one. We have the one, Christ Jesus, and the all of the church to whom Paul is writing. Not just in Corinth, but of all ages. All of the church, defined by God's eternal election. And now Paul says, if this be true, and it is, then we're all dead. Then we're all dead. Now that's our King James. And that suggests, doesn't it, that if Christ died for all of us, then that is an indication that we were all dead in sin and therefore all liable to the eternal death of hell. But that's not the meaning here because that's not the best translation. A better translation, which is found in other translations, is this. If one died for all, then all died. If one died for all, then all died. That means that Christ's death on the cross is our death. Christ died and we died in and through him. To make that clear, let's go to the fact that in Adam, we all sinned. Romans 5, verse 12. For as by one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, why? For that all have sinned. And if you keep on reading in Romans 5, and we're not going to go in to show that, it becomes obvious that the thought is this, that when Adam, the one man, sinned, all sinned. We all committed the sin in the garden. Why is that? How is that? Because he is our representative head. He represented us in the garden. That's the way God made the human race. And so we're all guilty of that original sin. We all get the punishment of that sin. And if we didn't breathe one breath, and if we didn't commit one act on our own, we're guilty of that original sin. And with it, the penalty of death. But now God in His mercy has chosen out of that fallen human race a church to be found in every tribe, tongue, and nation, and he has given them another representative to take the place of Adam, and that's his son, Jesus Christ. 
and God sent Christ into the world, his son, and he, because he was the head of his people, became guilty of their sin. He has the guilt of your sin and mine, and the punishment that belongs to us comes upon him, and he endured it all, especially on the cross. But now the point is this, that just as in Adam we sinned, so in Christ we bore the punishment of our sin. And we died that death. That's the point. That's also the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism. Because I see some faces that are looking kind of, are you sure? Are you really sure? I'm sure. Lord's Day 23. After explaining the Apostles' Creed, all that is necessary for a Christian to believe, we're asked this question, but what does it profit thee now that thou believest all this, that I am righteous in Christ before God, and an heir of eternal life? And then the next question is, how art thou righteous before God? And it's a lengthy answer, and what I'm getting at is at the last part. So, so pay attention. How art thou righteous before God? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. So that though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God without any merit of mine, but merely of grace grants and imputes to me, what? The perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Now notice, even so as if I never had nor committed any sin. Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. When I am joined and you are joined to Christ by faith, God reckons and imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ's cross. And It's as though we had never sinned. And because of our connection to Christ, it's as if you and I and every believer fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And that's the truth here. Christ's death is our death. Even as Adam's original sin is ours, Christ's death is ours. And that's of greatest significance. In Christ, we've paid the price of sin. We're without sin, without guilt before God, worthy of his blessings. In Christ, not us, in Christ. And the point now is that Christ did this all for us in our place in his love. In his love. What a horrible ordeal the cross was. Jesus, God, Christ had to endure the infinite wrath of God against the sins of all of the elect of God. That's something that no created being ever will do. Not even Satan himself. None will suffer worse in hell than Satan. But the wrath of God is so great 
It's infinite against sin that a mere created being can never endure it all. That's why hell will never end. Never end. Those in hell can never say, well, now I've taken the full punishment. Now now that's done. Lord, just do away with me. No. But Christ had to endure it all in one lifetime, and especially on the cross. It's something that he called his hour. That was the hour that was going to end his life here. And as it came closer and closer, it came to weigh upon him heavier, more heavily and heavily. So that in the night in which he was arrested, we see him in Gethsemane. In anticipation of what's going to come, the blood vessels burst in his forehead and dropped, drops of blood like sweat on the ground. If it be possible, Father, let this cup pass from me three times. If it be possible, is there any other way I can do this? No. An angel had to come and comfort him. So he went to the cross. And even there, especially in those three hours of darkness, it was worse than he had anticipated. Because he cries out finally, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All through his life he had known the wrath of God against our sins. But always he knew God's love, God's love. From heaven God even spoke it. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But on the darkness of the cross, he even lost sight of that. Why? You've forsaken me. No one will never know the depths of his agony. And what was it that motivated him to move forward as that hour approached and to stay on the cross, even when he was challenged by his Enemies, why don't you come down from the cross? What kept him there? Love. Not just a sense of obligation. It was love. Love. He loved us. He loved us because God, the triune God of whom he is a part, loves us eternally with an infinite love. He loves us as the mediator sent from God into our flesh to be one of us. Because the triune God loves him. That's what motivated him. To die this horrible, accursed death. So that's the first point. So for what purpose? What was his purpose? That we should no longer live unto ourselves, but unto Christ, who died for us. What does it mean to live to yourself? What does it mean to die unto yourself? To live unto yourself means that you live strictly for your own advantage. In fact, in both cases, in the original, there's a construction, a grammatical construction, the dative of advantage. To live to the advantage of yourself, to live to the advantage of Christ. That's the grammatical construction. You're living for your own advantage. 
To live unto yourself means that your concern is you, yourself. Your comfort, your pleasure, your honor, your wealth, your position. It's all self-seeking and self-centered. And those who are living to themselves, well, all that they do is basically calculated to advance and realize their self-centered goals and purpose. I'm a young person. I'm in high school. Soon I'm going to graduate. What shall I do? Shall I go into the workaday world, learn a trade? Shall I go to college so I can get a better job? Shall I go off sailing for a year and goof off? Well, what do I want to do? What do I want to do? That's living for yourself. And then lo and behold, you get it to be in your 20s, and well, what about marriage? Shall I get married? Boy, I'm having a good time now. I'm having a good time. time marriage is going to tie me down. Do I want to get married? I don't know. What, what do I want? You know, it's acceptable today to, to find a living partner with benefits. Maybe that's the way to go. What do I want? Okay, I want to get married. Well, who am I going to marry? Well, someone who will make me happy. Someone who will make, who will please me. And then, what about a family? You know, a family, uh, children can really cramp your lifestyle. You can't just pick up and leave. If you didn't know that, young couples, before you have children, that, that's the way it is. It's a life changer. And it's going to cost money. It's going to cost a lot of money. Well, maybe we ought to just wait. Wait until our 30s, until we're well established. Or <laughs> out in the Midwest, if you had a farm... The thing of the family farm is almost a thing of the past, but you wanted sons to work in your farm. So that was a good thing to have sons. But it's what I want. And my work. What my line of work will be. Well, what suits me? And what am I going to do with my finances? What, what do I want to do? That's living to yourself. And you know, someone who is, limit, who, who is caught up in that finds that the law of God is always getting in his way. The law of God says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Tells us things that we must do to honor God and things that we must avoid. And how to do, seek the welfare of our neighbor and things that will hurt them. And, and that miserable law is always getting in the way of someone who's living for his own comfort, his own joy, his own agenda. It's always in the way. And so usually it's set aside, at least those things that get in the way. Living to yourself.
To live unto Christ is to live in the service of Christ. That means that your chief concern is not yourself, not your own pleasure, comfort, prosperity, but your chief concern is the cause of Christ and the promotion of his kingdom. That's your chief concern. And what you do in life is calculated. Okay, we'll go back to high school again. My life is for Christ. Well, how can I best serve Christ when I get out of high school? Would it be best to go to college? Would it be better for me to go into the workaday world, learn a trade? Would it be best for me to go on a, on a, on a year off jog around? No, that wouldn't work. That doesn't, help. that doesn't promote the cause of Christ. What will enable me best to serve the cause of Christ? And yes, marriage. With only a few exceptions, every young person needs a marriage partner effectively to serve the Lord, to compliment him or her. Well, I'm living unto Christ, so I better find a marriage partner. And not just someone who will do something for me, but one that I can live together and serve with together to serve the Lord. That's living unto Christ. And what about children? Well, one of the purposes of marriage is to have children because God perpetuates the covenant through them. So to live unto Christ means I I desire, if possible, to have children that the covenant may continue in my generations. And the work that I go into, how can I best serve Christ? How do I use my finances? What's the best way to serve Christ? That's living unto Christ. And of course, those who who live unto Christ have their eye on the law. Love God, love your neighbor. Don't do this Because that is not love. Do this instead. And those who will live for Christ find that to live for Christ according to the law well is often the way of self-denial. To live unto Christ isn't always the life of comfort and ease, of recognition, of wealth. It isn't. But if someone is dedicated to live unto Christ, that doesn't make any difference. Those sacrifices are gladly made. By nature, we live unto ourselves, don't we? We are born dead in sin. And the depravity of our spiritual death is so great and deep that all we want to do and all we can do is live unto ourselves. Our depravity by nature is such that there is no room in our hearts, no room in our lives to live unto Christ. It's all living unto self. And you see that in the world around you. Sad to say, you see too much of that in the church, too. And we'll get that to the, in the, in the final point. Now, the purpose of Christ dying for us is that we should no longer live unto ourselves, 
but unto him. That's why he did this. Now, there are other purposes too, but that is, in this passage, set forth as a very important purpose for us to remember why Christ died for us and arose. That we no longer live unto ourselves, but unto him. You see, the point is this. It's a most miserable existence to live unto yourself. It is a most miserable bondage to live unto yourself. Now, the world doesn't agree with that. That's not popular theology or philosophy. That's not psychology. All the world knows is, hey, if you want to have a happy life, you've got to put yourself number one. What's good for me? I, I, I listen, uh, listen, I read in the paper about some of these athletes that are making millions upon millions of dollars. And instead of sticking with a community where they could do a lot of good, they're moving around because this is what's good for me. This is what's good for me. And that's the mentality of people. I'm going to do this because this is what's good for me. That's the key to a happy life, and it's not. That life is at best empty and meaningless. A life that seeks your own comfort, your own honor, your own power, and your own wealth is an empty life. That's not the key to happiness. Solomon found that out. Solomon had it all. He was the richest in the whole Mediterranean world. He had power, he had wealth, he had recognition. And God gave it to him. And for the first part of his kingship, he used it to serve the Lord. And then he fell off into foolishness. And he got married to a bunch of heathen princes and and, and he simply went to serve himself. Multiplied wives, multiplied idols. He was living to himself. Explored everything he wanted to for himself. And then at the end of life, God brought him to his senses and he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Vanity means empty. It's empty. It was just an empty part of my life. Ted Turner, you ever heard of him? He used to, I think he still owns the Atlantic Braves. And he's the owner of the Superstation in Atlanta, TBS. Multi-billionaire. Living for himself. I heard him say on a TV interview, You know something? I have found that life is pretty much an empty bag. All he has, he looks in the bag of his life, all the riches, all all these, it's just an empty bag. It's true. That's the best you can say. Because there's more. And that's this, that a self-serving life 
brings God's judgment. Look at our society. More and more controlled by broken homes, broken marriages, families that are dysfunctional, alcoholism, depression, anxiety, in the midst of abuse and betrayal and conflict. And what's the origin of it? A society that's self-serving. Our canons of Dort speak of the fact that God left to fallen man remnants of natural light, whereby they are able to see right from wrong and even have an outward regard for it because they see if there's not morality, outward morality, everything falls apart. And so they try to live outward morally, even though that's for themselves. But the more the Lord gives the society as he has ours, the more that self-seeking reflects itself in abandoning the outward morals that once control the decent functioning society and everything plummets down into chaos and that's where we are in our society that's God's judgment upon people families a society that is serving itself and of course that is without repentance the way to hell What a terrible, terrible scourge. What a bondage to be caught in that. But how different it is in the service of Christ. When we live unto Christ, it's different. He died to deliver us from that. Do you realize that as long as we stand before God in the guilt of our sin, we are legally bound to that life. Live to yourself, live to yourself, empty, wasteful, judgment, hell. We're bound to it. Christ died for us to remove us from that guilt, to free us from that guilty, that that legal obligation and penalty but that's not enough then we also have to be changed so he also rose again that we might live through a new birth and in this passage speaks of both of those so not only are we justified we're, 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 we're born again we're sanctified so that we may live unto Christ And there is where you find freedom and happiness and eternal joy. What is the great blessing of living unto Christ? Well, let's start with our relationship with God. There's no peace for those who live unto themselves. No peace with God. But there is peace with those who live unto Christ. When it comes to the fellowship with God, our synod in 2018 said it's based upon the work of Christ. It's enjoyed by faith alone in the way 
of good works. What are we talking about? Living on to Christ, a life of good works. That's the way in which we enjoy, through faith, the greatest good that we could ever have, intimate fellowship with God. What a blessing. God's blessings are on the obedience of gratitude we do. And then there are more blessings you'll find in your marriage, in your family, in the community of saints. Living unto Christ is a life of living of love to God and love to the neighbor according to the standard of the law. And that has God's blessing of solid, happy marriages, families that are close and intimate as they live in relationship to God, a society of God's people. That's what we are, a community here, living together in harmony and unity. And ultimately, that's the way God chooses to lead us to heaven. The way to heaven is not the way of living to yourself. The way that leads to heaven in Christ is living unto Christ. That's why Christ died for us. That's why he arose again. That we might be freed from that bondage of living unto self. Freed to live unto him. And it was all motivated by his great, great love for us. Now the final point. A wonderful constraint. All this constrains Paul. That is Christ's love for him. A love that sent him to the death of the cross. A love that, made, that raised him from the dead. That we might live unto Christ. All that constrains Christ, Paul to live unto Christ and not unto himself. Let's understand Paul's situation. He was born again in Christ. There was a time when he was a wicked, evil man, although from an outward point of view, he looked like he was impeccable. He was a Pharisee. A Pharisee of the Pharisees, but his righteousness and obedience was simply a thin veneer. He persecuted Christ. He persecuted the church until Christ approached him and intercepted him on the way to Damascus and changed his heart, brought him to his knees. And then his focus became not himself, but Christ. Christ. He even writes at the end of his life, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Philippians 1.21 However, because the work of grace is not finished in him, it was only begun. He still had this sinful inclination. So that he writes in Romans chapter 7, the good that I would I do not and the evil that I would not that I do. He was still much inclined. There was something in him that inclined him much 
to live unto himself and not unto Christ who died for him. And so he says, it's the love of Christ that constrains me to live unto Christ. To constrain means to compel to action. What Paul is saying here is this, that as he's battling his sinful nature, and all the inclinations to live unto himself, there's the one thing especially that moves him to turn away from living unto himself and to live unto Christ. And that is Christ's love for me, his love for me. His love for me. Look what he did in his love. How can I, how can I turn my back on that? And, and, and Paul found that to live under Christ was a hard way. He was sent by Christ to be the great missionary to the Gentiles. He was despised. He was beaten and whipped. He was imprisoned. His back was ripped back and forth with scars. It was not an easy life. But it was... Christ's love for me. Look how he loved me. I can't serve myself. He loved me and died for me so that I would live unto him. That's what motivated him and brought him to his knees to find the the grace of of God in Christ to continue to live unto Christ. Let me give you an illustration maybe to make it clear. Ah, that thing. Got a young man in college, or a woman, comes from a family that's not very well off. He knows that his parents wanted him to have the advantage of a college education. And they didn't have much money, and so they worked to the bone. And they scrimped, and they saved, and they sacrificed so that they could send him to college because to get a certain degree... Okay, so now they send him off, and he finds that this university is a party place. Oh, man, look at all the fun you can have. All the drinking, all the parties. And that's what a lot of young people do. That's why a lot of them drop out the first semester. But now this young man remembers. But look at all the sacrifice my parents made. All the love that went into to their work to get me here. Am I just going to ignore that? Run roughshod over that? And waste my time here in partying? If he has one ounce of appreciation for his parents' loving sacrifice, he'll do everything he can to make the best of his opportunity. That's an illustration. It doesn't fit in every respect, but that's the main point. Now, what about you and me? We're here as the household of faith. There is the one man who died for all, the church. And love went to the horror and the agony of hell. Why? Well, at least for this, more, but this, that we should be freed 
from the bondage of living to ourselves, that empty life, that life of judgment that leads to hell. That's why he did that. He suffered in love so that we might be free to live unto him and have in this life and eternity all that is good. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? Oh, yeah. It's hard sometimes to live unto Christ, isn't it? It's not an easy way. And to, and to live unto yourself, that, is sure, that sure looks good in many ways. And the world knows how to make it good. And, and, and they, they invite you and they coax you along. Are you going to turn your back upon the loving sacrifice of Christ and ignore that? Shame on us if we do. Shame on us to the degree we do it. May the love of Christ, which led him to die for you and me, constrain us not to live unto ourselves, but unto him who died for us and rose again. Amen. Father in heaven, we're thankful for thy word. Bless it to us, O God. Fill us with the joy of our salvation. Give us to know the love that Christ showed to us. And give us to know the love that moved him to die for us so that we may gladly live in his power the purpose that he died to thy glory. We pray this for Jesus' sake.